Good afternoon. First, in what feels like uh, tag team dharma, um, since I've just arrived and been introduced this morning, I now have the pleasure of introducing the next dharma teacher and faculty member who's down sitting next to Sally on the right. And many of you may know her, Anushka Fernandapole, who has been one of the founding teachers of the East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland, which is a wonderful place, one of the most if not the most diverse Dharma center in the planet. Um, but Anushka has also been teaching at Spirit Rock and in retreats and programs um, all around the country. And I'm very, very glad that she can be here and join us. And I thought it would be good if we'd start with a bit of sitting, as we usually do, 10 or 15 minutes. On your mark. <laughs> Hurry up and meditate. We need the Zafus, right? It's a great pleasure to be back here uh, at uh, Mental Physics. I was just here for the nine-day retreat. Um, and now to come and see you and be part of the beginning of DPP, which is, to me, a really wonderful program. I'm very happy to be part of it. And today being Vesak the day of the Buddha's birth and enlightenment, and also his death. He was, as we say, very tidy, you know, kind of made it easy for people to not have to put a lot of holidays around the year and remember them. Um, the theme that I'd like to talk about and work with you on this afternoon um, is one that is often a kind of taboo in meditation, circles, uh, and that is enlightenment. Um, and it seems with the level of practice and dedication that you bring to this program that begins, um, the sincerity really, the genuineness of it, um, it seems important in some way, on, especially on the Buddhist day of enlightenment, that we be willing to at least begin uh, a heartfelt conversation, since that word, enlightenment, or the possibility of liberation, freedom, there are a number of other words that are used, um, is really central to Buddha Dharma. Um, one of my teachers said, if you see a, a Bodhi tree leaf, the shape of a Bodhi tree leaf, um, it has a big body and then it ends up in this one little point. And all the teachings of the Dharma end up in this one little point, which is um, liberation. So it seems a worthy conversation, yes? Um, and also it invokes um, the... I'm quite sure that the right word is... Um, I was going to use the word seriousness, but it's not the right word. Um, the genuineness of our coming together and practicing in this way. So before we do anything, we'll do some small conversations and some teachings and uh, dyads or a number of forms we'll use this afternoon. If you could raise or ask any question about enlightenment, what would they be? I'd like, just like to hear from you out loud some of your questions. Should we use a mic? 
Thank you, Temple. It, you know, don't be shy about these. Because you, usually you're not allowed to ask these things, right? So I'm not saying we're going to give you the answers, but we want to know the questions. How do you know when you get there? How do you know when you get there? That's a fabulous question. Is it possible in this lifetime? Is it possible in this lifetime? Great. Even though somebody I know has helped um, edit that book by Upandita called In This Very Life. But that's just the title, and we know, you know the cover and title are not necessarily the plot inside. So it's a great question. Next. Is it a place that one goes? Is it a place that one goes? Great. What is the unconditioned? What is the unconditioned? Are you, or do you know anyone who is enlightened? Am I? <laughs> or have I ever been? <laughs> or do I know? There does seem to be some taboo about teachers acknowledging that they are enlightened. I'm wondering about that, what that's about. What, what's the story with that taboo? <laughs> really, especially because there's a book I was reading this weekend by this guy, Daniel Ingram. I'm trying to remember the title of it. Something like, um, you know, The Real Dharma. Somebody remember the title? Hardcore Dharma. And it's, um, and the, it's Daniel Ingram, comma, Arhat. You know, so enlightened one, just so you know, you know who, who's writing it. And I thought, well, that's, you know, PhD, MD, and Arahat. <laughs> Some people aren't shy, I guess. Okay, what else? If one doesn't necessarily hold so dear the notion of reincarnation as it is viewed uh, in the East, how does one work with the peace of enlightenment that is seen as the escape from the cycle of birth and death. How do you work with the escape from samsara if this is the only life you have? Thank you. There's a few more temples to look around to your left. Well, wherever. There's plenty of them. It's just great to air this out. I admit to every once in a while looking back at ignorance as being enviable. And I wonder if there is um, someone who has gained enlightenment that would like to give it back. Would like to give it back. That's great. That's a fabulous question. Can we have moments of enlightenment? Are there moments? And if so, how do we keep from grasping them and wanting to hold on to them? Fabulous. Especially if there's a moment of non-grasping, then what do you do, right? Is it possible to define enlightenment if one is not enlightened? Thank you. Um, in the beginning of my practice, I got confused as to the different traditions. Can, oh, um, can you explain why the, the split in the beginning or way back in the early days of the Mahayana and the Theravadan view of enlightenment. Ah, can I explain the, the difference in Mahayana and, and Theravada views of enlightenment? Thank you. And why the enlightened beings put each other down. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's weird, isn't it? But they do. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. One of the last things the Buddha said in his first talk was that this is the last becoming. Um, 
how did he know and how can he have just touched the earth and said this is so without having some other kind of external verification? So how could he know? Thank you. Are there more than, more than one form of enlightenment and are there different meanings of enlightenment to different people? More than one forms of enlightenment and more than different ones for different people. Yes, in terms of definition and what they mean, what it may mean to them. Yeah, thank you. A few more. I'm sure I don't understand the idea of enlightenment, but I've gotten this thought or this idea in my mind that it has to do with giving up this life, this cycle of samsara. But I love this life, and I don't really want to go away from this life. Right. So you want to know? Can you get enlightened and still have? Dark chocolate with almonds. Well, no, but no pleasure and joy and also sadness and loss and... Yeah, do you have to give up this life to to get enlightened? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Great questions. What are the stages of enlightenment? And were the teachers who were unethical with their students really enlightened? Mm. I've talked to a few of them. Many of them, actually. Are they really enlightened? Can you catch it? Yeah. <laughs> is it contagious? Can you catch it? Is yeah, is it contagious? Yeah. Um, it, which I guess is kind of related to the role of the guru. The latest what? The role of the guru. The role of the guru. You know, to, can to you catch it? it? Yeah. Um, and what is the role of suffering? What is the role of suffering? In, along the journey to enlightenment. Ah. Okay, we'll just do a couple more. There's so many good ones. But we could spend the afternoon just with the questions, and that would probably be enough, really. Okay. So is, is wanting to become enlightened a form of grasping? Mm. Another interesting and great one. Is wanting to become enlightened a form of grasping? Yeah. Yeah, there's a beautiful, maybe we'll get, it will get taught here at some point. There's a beautiful... Um, text, a sutta called One Fortunate Desire. So, you know, we'll, maybe we'll get to that. A couple more. Once, in, once enlightened, do you stay enlightened? Ah, do you stay? You mean it's like if you're not a virgin anymore, is it like is that one of those kind of things? Um, understanding the rebirth and how you... Un- how you know you're being reborn, and these rebirths that bring you towards enlightenment and and understanding that in each rebirth, how that goes, that feels sometimes confusing to me. I think we should stop, what do you all... I mean, I've got, you know, 25 fabulous questions, and, and I can feel there are many more, and you'll be able to talk among yourselves some. Enlightenment is a really... Um, complicated word, as you can hear, and it means different things, and we have had different ideas, and not only that, they probably changed what you believe or what you imagine over the course of your spiritual practice. I have, in recent years, given um, one talk uh, on the nature of enlightenment, particularly at the two-month retreat. I wonder how many people have heard that one, that talk that I've given. Just a small handful. Okay. Great, I can use the same jokes then. That's good. Um, this is imp- enlightenment, really, I'll tell you. Okay. Um, 
I want to say a few more things and then we'll, we'll break into a group. Even within the Buddhist texts themselves, there are different languages and approaches and descriptions to enlightenment. So, for example, there's a passage in the text which, in which the Buddha says, just as the floor of the great ocean doesn't drop precipitously to the bottom depths, but rather gradually as the shelf goes out under the water, gets deeper and deeper and deeper, so too one doesn't go to enlightenment with a precipitous drop into the depths, but the course of practice and the course of enlightenment or liberation follows this like the gradual slope of the ocean floor. You have that. Then you have texts where the Buddha was seated in Vulture's Peak or in the cool wood at Tapoda or you know, Jivaka's Mango Grove or one of those places and gave a discourse on the nature of impermanence and selflessness. And it says, oh, and by the way, all of those sitting in attendance, or many of them, on hearing these words, were enlightened. You know, and where's the ocean floor in that one? I mean, so there's that contradiction. There's the sudden and gradual, and for 2,500 years, um, there have been different views on that. Um, as you'll see as we go along, um, those of you who were schooled in the little ovals of examinations, when you get to E and it says all of the above, that turns out to be a very useful answer for many of these questions, quite, quite sincerely. Um, there's the kind of visions that people have of enlightenment as some old monk, generally it's in Asia, it's the monks and not the nuns. That's another interesting thing, is the feminine version of enlightenment different than the masculine version? You know, and does one even dare ask that question? Um, but usually it's like some old monk who's practiced for 80 years in some forest or some cave and they're there and they're all dried out and they're an arahant, you know, and um, maybe we've seen one once in a, in a lifetime or something. So it makes it pretty distant, doesn't it? And doesn't seem very accessible. And then, the, then there's the additional problems which your questions gave about the cosmology. Well, then do you, have to, do you have to take robes? Because in some texts, it seems to indicate that you do. But then in others, it doesn't. And again, there's the Mahayana and the Theravada and, you know, um, there in the Theravada, in, at least in the commentaries, it says that um, before you reach full enlightenment, you have to take robes as a monk or a nun. Um, you couldn't be a fully enlightened lay person um, in one place. And then uh, in the Mahayana, um, when you take bodhisattva vows, you vow not to put off your full enlightenment until you become a Buddha and all beings become awakened. But yet in all my practice with Tibetan teachers and Zen masters in Mahayana, I never once had anybody say, don't get enlightened. They all wanted you to get enlightened. So there are these really interesting contradictions. Then there are the more immediate descriptions of enlightenment. This is Ajahn Buddha Dasa, the forest master 
from southern Thailand who talks about nirvana. He said, nirvana is the coolness of letting go, of not clinging, the delight of experience when there's neither grasping nor resistance to life, just being. Anyone can see that if grasping and aversion were with us all day and night without ceasing, whoever could stand them? Under that condition, living beings would either die or become insane. Instead, we survive because there are natural periods of coolness, of wholeness, and ease. I mean, think about it in your life. How many of you like a good night's sleep? You don't have to raise your hands. Isn't it an amazing thing to go to your bed? It's dark, generally. You know, and you get ready and you go, oh, sweet unconsciousness, please come. May it last long and be easy and the pillows be soft and wake and refreshed. And I don't have to be moi for like a whole number of hours or to solve problems. And it's so natural to us to let go. And that's not scary even, is it? It's delicious. And I'm not saying that that's enlightenment, but it's the letting go of who we think ourselves to be in this mysterious way, over and over, regularly. And here's Buddha Dasa saying, we survive because there are natural periods of coolness and wholeness and ease, which includes good sleep. In fact, these periods last longer than the fires of our grasping and fear. It is this that sustains us. We have periods of rest that make us refreshed, alive, well. We have moments we are just with the world as it is. Why don't we feel thankful for this everyday nirvana? Interesting. Not in the caves, not in the Himalayas, not in robes, just this immediacy. But then there are the long retreats, and I've done my own long retreats and had periods where concentration became very strong and the body just became a field of sensations arising and passing like waves of the ocean, only tiny little ones like pixels on a screen and then it dissolves into light and then there's nothing and there's experiences of the void. turns out there's several different experiences of the void and things stop and they cease and they start again and you go, wow, was that it? You know, or, or is the light, the luminosity that it? Or you do metta on a deep retreat and you get to where you become metta. Or I did peyote ceremonies with Don Jose Rios, this wonderful 103-year-old Huichol shaman, and sitting up all night and rattling and throwing up once in a while from the peyote, you know, and then having this experience of becoming a redwood tree. You know, there's times when I've been, you know it on retreat, you go and you feel, you, you go to a tree and you touch the bark and you just feel like it's your sister or your brother. But then there's the time when you become the damn tree, you know? Oh, here I am. And it was complete, well, peyote helped, right. But anyway, <laughs> you know, here we are. And it was the purpose of it. Or you feel yourself swimming up the stream as a salmon. Because identity and consciousness can change. And so, well, this is from Alice Walker. She writes, one day when I was sitting there like a motherless child, which I was, it came to me that feeling of being a part of everything, and I knew if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed, and I cried, and I run all around the house. In fact, when it happens, you just can't miss it. And so there's one point where Zen Master Dogen, the founder of Soto Zen sect in Japan, says, um, 
you may not be aware of your own enlightenment. Kind of just putting little snippets of answers that may or may not be true to your questions. Because you can hear the paradoxes in the landscape that even raising this question, what does it mean to be awakened? A moment of awakening. Um, you have walked in the mountains and or the desert, or you've been there for a childbirth or your own child's birth, or making love or listening to amazing music, or a hundred other ways where the sense of yourself disappears. Or in the simplest, most beautiful way, you know, sitting there and drawing or writing, you know, and the, the greed of desire and the judgment and aversion drop, and there's just presence and being. Or sitting in meditation. Um, we all have these experiences. And then some of you have been around various teachers at times. Somebody asked about gurus. I think about, you know, all of the teachers, myself included, who went to spend time, not all, but many of, many of us, with Advaita teachers in India, with Punja and Nisargadad and so forth. And one of the most beautiful things that Punja did for our community, and he was a very wonderful Hari Lal Punja in Lucknow. He was a very wonderful teacher of non-duality in the tradition of Ramana Maharshi and so forth who Joseph and Sharon and Howie and Carol and Sally and Guy, I think, and um, Sylvia and Anna and lots and lots of our teachers spent time with. I spent time with Nisargadot, who was in the same lineage. One of the most beautiful things about Punja is he could transmit this great field of freedom, but he would look at you and he would say, you know, you already know. You know who you are. You forget it, you know, when you're shopping or, you know, worried about things. But there is some deep knowing. This poem from Juan Ramon Jimenez, great Latin poet, he writes, I am not I. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit and at other times I forget. The one who remains silent when I talk. The one who forgives sweet when I hate. The one who takes a walk when I am indoors. And the one who will remain standing when I die. And there is in us a sense of that which is eternal, which is timeless which is outside of our own identity. And we touch it in all kinds of ways. And so enlightenment is sometimes described as the deathless, the timeless, the, the pure, the transparent, the unalloyed. There are all these beautiful synonyms, a hundred of them in Buddhist texts. Purity, freedom, the, the shelter, the refuge, the beyond, the deathless. Cessation, the unoriginated, the unborn. And there are moments when we step out of time, because time is constructed by, by thought, and step out of identity. So one vision is the letting go of that identity. Then there are all these other descriptions of, the, of enlightenment as being the release from the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion that 
Buddha Dasa spoke about even in those moments of everyday nirvana, of neither grasping nor resistance nor delusion, when those drop away and there's a purity of being. So enough words. What I'd like to invite you to do in this breaking of the taboo, if you will, um, in a moment is to make groups of four. And you will have, let's see, a little more than half an hour, eight minutes apiece. Um, and in the group, I would like you to talk about one of your deepest experiences of awakening in whatever time or way or form it came. And it might be, of course, in meditation, but it might not be at all. It might be witnessing a childbirth or sitting next to somebody when they die, which is, opens a gateway between this world and the vastness that's pretty hard to ignore, or any other possible moment to share what something that's really genuine and, and uh, deep in you that is one of your moments of, or periods or experiences of real awakening. And if you want to add anything else to this conversation beside listening to one another, um, and it does fill the room with a certain, pay attention to the states of mind and the qualities that come as you have this conversation. I won't say anything about it, but just notice what it does to the state of the mind and heart. And also, if it turns out that you're all done talking about that and there's still more time, which may not be so, um, you could add into the conversation the ideas that you have held originally or initially about enlightenment and how they might have changed as you have gone on in your spiritual path. But primarily it's for four people each to share one of your, any of your deepest spiritual experiences. Is that clear? Um, so we're going to talk about the stuff that we don't usually talk about. And then we'll go on from there. And it's, you know, it's a grace to do so. You'll see. See what happens. So go ahead. Uh, a little change in instruction that I was given by, um, that I think is helpful. Um, make your description of your experience shorter, five minutes, and then that way you'll have ten minutes at the end in your group um, just to have a general conversation about what states it evoked in you to talk about this, what it was like, and what it was like to listen to one another or questions you have for each other. So it gives a little time for the group too. And if you have, yeah, anyway, just play with it. Finish up. And then let yourself come back to wherever you were sitting. Thank your group members when you do. So let's take a few minutes um, to hear from those of you who would like to speak, some of you, um, either wanting to share, at least in a shortened version, um, what you said in the group, uh, what came to you as a expression of your realization or your understanding. Um, 
and the other question is, what was it like for you to talk about it? Maybe we should start with that question. What do you think? Yeah, let's start with that. How was it to talk about this before we get the content in the room? Where, again, Tempo has the mic and it's good to use it. So It was incredible. I mean, I think at least two or three of us said, you know, we've never really said this before. And then out comes something which out comes something which is deeply meaningful, maybe you know, life-changingly meaningful for you and, and you're sharing it and other people are taking it in and connecting with it. And that was, I mean, that was very magical. The space that got created brought me back to the place where I was, where I was sharing. So it really changed your consciousness even yeah. to, to speak and to listen. Thank you. Others? It was just really beautiful and I felt a lot of joy to hear other people talk about their experience in that way. And it kind of was a looping, it seemed like we all kind of got off on each other's experience. It was really sweet. Thank you. Oh yeah, please say your name before you speak so we get to know who's who, name-wise. Hi, my name is Julia. And um, for me, I, I really, really enjoyed my group and, and listening to the three other beings that were sharing these incredibly beautiful experiences. Um, but for me, um, I felt really, really uncomfortable talking about it. I think the most traumatic thing that's probably ever happened to me was sharing an experience like that, having done so in really open-minded groups of friends and sharing it in a very conservative culture at one point with someone who really, I think, wasn't ready to hear about in certain aspects of my experience, um, who then really attacked me. Um, and, um, and so, although I loved hearing about the other three people, I sort of made mine really short, sweet, and to the point, and stayed in, in duality while I was doing it. And it, it made me really sad to relegate myself to duality when sharing something that's such an important part of the experience of, of being in this package. Yeah, thank you for saying that and um, for the honesty. And there's something that you know might be helpful because we'll be doing a lot of this kind of work over the time. And that is if you come to a place where you're all working with one another and it feels unsafe to share because of some past trauma or some experience, um, and you feel comfortable, you're able to say that. Say, I'm going to make my sharing brief because the last time I did this was in a you know very conservative place and I got slammed for it, so it scares me. There's a, there's a kind of freedom that starts to happen for you in being able to name what your inner experience is as well. So I thank you for naming it in the group. My name is Chaco, and uh, um, I felt in the, the three other people who are in my group also uh, shared that they felt uh, very affirmed for uh, the experiences that we all had in, in our own um, separate lives. Um, I used to, and it also uh, changed. Uh, my point of uh, 
my way of thinking about enlightenment because I used to feel very skeptical of this idea um, and I, I, I felt that um, it sort of happened in these mundane, ordinary places, um, just being human. But it, it didn't seem like that was the view that I read in books and things. Um, so I've, I've, you know, listening to other people share about these, these small uh, but big uh, awakening moments, and I felt uh, confirmed and affirmed. Hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. And isn't it, isn't it an amazing thing to feel affirmed in your experience, especially in something that says both tender, as the last comment made, it's so we get vulnerable in a way, but also so important and deep. So thank you. Hi, my name is Carol. Um, I had a, a little bit of tenderness, too, and I, I realized that it was because I was telling a story that was a very precious life story to me. And I was starting to tell it in a way that I wasn't really quite connected to my own story or knowing the people well enough. And so I, I stopped in the middle and doubted whether or not, um, you know, and then I felt, well, okay, I'll finish the story. And, it, and I think it came out okay, probably better than okay. But um, it, it did feel like, boy, it's important when you're going to share the precious story to feel like you have companions that will honor the preciousness of it. So that, that was good. Um, but the other thing is that I realized that part of my story involved using the word God, because my experience was one of quite a number of years ago, but it was a, an experience where I had been really felt like I'd had a major intervention in my life by God. And then I suddenly thought as I was starting the story, oh dear, I'm going to use the G You're in the wrong church. I'm going to use the G word. <laughs> and I'm with all these Oh Bs. my God. <laughs> And I, and, I, and I found myself wanting to figure out a way to minimize God in this context. And um, I was able to talk about that afterwards as a part of, was one of the states of mind mm. that I had been dealing with as I talked about it. Thank, Thank you. you. And again, I really appreciate um, the different things, the vulnerability that you talked about, um, how important it is when you're, you know, it's like you're a jewel merchant that's traveled across the deserts and the seas, and you're opening your cloak, and you're bringing out this velvet, and you're unrolling it, and here's, you know, the pearl of great price and this incredible emerald. And in some way, they are precious. It's terribly... On the other hand, there, it's, there is something about your carrying them that wants to find the right place to say, oh, look at the jewels that I found and I'm carrying. So you can feel both of those. And the language we use, because God is a part of our cultural's language for the sacred. And, you know, there's the old guy in the, with the beard who's, you know, sending people different places. Um, and <laughs> but there are a lot of other meanings for that word. 
and this beautiful dialogue that you can read between the Dalai Lama and Christian mystics or Thich Nhat Hanh, Jesus and Buddha and so forth. So it does, how, how, how does our experience feel and how will it be received become so important and to be affirmed. A couple more, thank you for that. I was very grateful for the work we had already done just in the last day on meditative reflection and also for the article that we were given in advance on meditative dialogue because my first reaction to the question was very defensive. I haven't had these big experiences. They're moments of insight. They're everyday moments of letting go. And we, we sat, I was grateful for the safety and, and closeness of the group, and we sat for about a minute or two by choice at the beginning to just be reflective. And that and the other work that we've done together really um, supported my being able to say and feel it's more important to me to speak truth about what comes up than to have you know, a good student answer to the question. And I think that same process that we've started to learn of meditative reflection made it possible for me to honor that one of the things that came up might have some validity that, that I might not have thought. I, I had one of the things that bubbled up was a way in which I felt that I was able to be fairly skillful and present with, um, with my adult daughter during a pe- very difficult period in her life. And my mind, my conscious mind wanted to say, there's nothing enlight- there was no enlightenment about that because you had zero equanimity. You hung in, you did many of the right things, you struck many of the right balances, but there was no equanimity. And I think, again, having just been schooled over the last day or two in allowing the reflection to be what it is, you know, without the cognitive mind having to have its way, was really helpful in saying, well, okay, that's interesting that a part of me holds that experience as a very high one, and and I'm going to investigate that more. So so thank you. Yeah, thank you. And I hope you can hear in a number of these comments that there's actually liberation in the air, you know, that when Chaco says, I felt so affirmed, you know, that there's something liberating about that. Or someone saying, well, I had to keep this secret in some way because it was so painful to have revealed it in the wrong circumstance. And, and and just to be able to name that, or as you have just named, well, I have these judgments about I haven't, or this one doesn't count, or whatever, but now I feel liberated enough in some way just to be who I am, where I am. And you start to feel the, the genuine liberation of sangha and presence and your own mindfulness in, in speaking about this, and it's beautiful. And I remember the one of the first teacher meetings, and I've led a lot of teacher meetings because sort of started them back in the 70s at IMS um, with Sharon and Joseph and Vimalo and Ruth. And I'm trying to remember who all was there, Christopher and Christina and so forth. And we were sitting in what was the, li- the library living room in the beginning at IMS. And I said, well, I'd like us to go around and talk about before we talk about our business, let's talk about what 
you know, what's touched us and do the same conversation you did, talk about our deepest realizations. Um, and the room changed. There was a kind of light that came in the room. Even for those who were shy to speak, there was still a field of beauty and joy. And I saw it in some people's faces or people have named it here. Um, and a kind of intimacy that was a really healthy intimacy. When the Buddha speaks about having uh, connection with those who are noble or those who are awakened or those who are community members in the, in the, on the path, um, there's something really beautiful about this. And I think of the phrase Anna Douglas likes to use, all beings cheer you on, you know, that there's something so affirming in it. So thank you for naming all these. Um, let me ask a different question, because we could go with this for a while too. It's so interesting. Um, you can, uh, and, and this is, is there anyone, a couple of people who wants to share in a brief version, um, any of your ex experience that you shared in that group? I think the group is giving me the strength to tell this story that I was in, so I thank them. A very dear friend of mine died, and we were in a dissertation group together. And she's half Hawaiian and half white. And her mom called me the night she was dying and told me to come to the hospital. And we had vigil for her. And then early in the morning, about 3 a.m., 4 a.m., we went into her room. And after the priest said his whatever he said and left, we each her mom and myself and her two other friends, and we're like sisters in her family because she didn't have any sisters. We all touched a part of her body, and her mom said, you can go now. It's time. I let you go, and I love you dearly. And so we did this, and then we had a ceremony for her passing that was not a cremation, and it wasn't a funeral, it was a celebration. And she taught a, a class at City College and the entire Samoan football team came and they stood in the back of the room and they did a dance and they, they, they danced for her life. And then one of our classmates sang Amazing Grace and then someone else did the Lord's Prayer. And because of her Buddhist does like and love of the teachings, I did a metta prayer. And then her mother came over and told all of us, thank you. So, um, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Hmm. There is a text in the Majjhima Nikaya, I believe. Um, the, is not Pindika Sutta in the in Majjhima? Where the one where he's dying and Sariputta goes to see him? Do you know where that is? It's in the Majjhima, yeah. Anathapindika, yeah. Um, and you may get to it when you, when you read through the Majjhima and what you shared, Chahara, reminds me of it. Um, because Anathapindika was this great benefactor of the, of the monks and the nuns in the Buddhist time. Um, and he was very, very ill, and the Buddha sent his chief disciple Sariputta to go be with him. And uh, Sariputta got there and said, how are you faring in Natapindika? Are you better? Is your 
body feeling better? Is your mind better? And he said, no, my body is worse. It feels like a roaring furnace. It feels like it's being ripped to pieces. It feels all these terrible things. And how is your mind? My mind is not doing very well either, as you can imagine. And then Sariputta started not touching his body, but started to guide him through a meditation saying, um, this body is not I, is not who I am. These feelings, this burning and fire, this is not who I am. These pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant feelings, this is not who I am. These perceptions going through the aggregates, these are not who you are. The thoughts, this is not who I am. And, and bidding him release identity with any part of, the, of this incarnation, of this body. And then Anatta Tipindika said, I've been coming to the Buddhist teachings for a long time. Nobody ever taught me this. He said, I feel so much better. <laughs> Why didn't you teach? And he said, well, we tend to reserve these for the monastics, you know, for the lay people. We don't. And he said, my, my request to you before I die, my request is that these teachings of liberation, of selflessness, be given to everyone. So thank you, Shahar. And I'm just babbling on, but it's, it's such a beautiful field to be speaking into. Um, there's another text, and uh, I'm not sure where this one is. It might be in the Samyutta, um, in which a person comes to the Buddha and says, um, you are an awakened one, and the Buddha says, yes. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, when you ask him the question, uh, are, are, you, are you enlightened? How do I know? You know, and so forth. The Buddha seemed to not be shy about that. Um, and, and then he, he said, I have a question to pose to you. How is it that a person can act so they will not be visible to, not be seen by the king of death? How can you live in such a way that you will not be imprisoned by the, by the king of death? by Lord Yama. And the Buddha's response was basically, was, um, if you do not take body to be I or mine, if you do not take feelings to be I or mine, if you do not take perceptions to be I or mine, if you don't take thoughts to be I or mine, if you do not take consciousness, any of the field of the aggregates, and say, this I am, for one who does not claim anything to be me, mine, or I, or am, um, such a one will not be seen by the king of death. And so this really speaks to those moments in life which are a shift of identity, in which instead of being identified with body or personality or history, which is part of identity and you need it in this paradox, you kind of, you know, you need to remember your Buddha nature and your social security number, basically. Both of these things has, is sad. Um, but you don't want to be stuck in the reality of the social security number. You need to know that that's not who you really are in some fundamental way. And so both your story and these texts is the Buddha pointing to enlightenment as a shift of identity. Um, and... Uh, Something really s small, but I think ter also terribly helpful. There's a moment um, when Ramdas was teaching, and somebody raised their hand um, and said, "Would you talk about being Jewish?" 
because you do all this great, you know, Hindu Buddhist teaching and so forth. But weren't you raised as a nice Jewish boy? And and you know, what about the Jewish spiritual path? And Ramdas said, I was raised that way, as I was myself. And I was bar mitzvah. He said, I Ramdas said, I was bar mitzvah too. You know, I went to temple and so forth and went through all that. And there are beautiful things in the Buddhist tradition and in the Jewish tradition of. Um, especially in the mystical Hasidic and uh, tradition and um, you know a long long lineage of the Kabbalah and so forth um, so I respect that Ramda said but remember I'm only Jewish on my parents side <laughs> you know? and of course he was very witty and quick-witted before his stroke but there's also something extremely telling about that because what it says is that who you are is in part limited by your parents, your culture, your birth, your, birth, your, the, 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 your upbringing, the trauma you have, all the terrible things that happened to you in your childhood that we know about enough, that we know enough about, right? Um, <laughs> and all of that, that that's part of an identity and that needs to be tended to and healed. But it's not who you really are. And part of the question of enlightenment, there's different sides to this, is who are you really in this? And you know it, um, a beautiful, simple way to encounter this question is to go in the bathroom and look at yourself in the mirror and notice that you've aged. Right? We do know that. Um, but that weird feeling that we get, if you really pause and look, is that you don't necessarily feel that much older. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Yes. But it's, it's lost its fur and it's got, you know, <laughs> wrinkles here and there. And it sort of, it does what it... And in that moment of seeing, it's as if consciousness, as the witness knows, well, hmm, you know, rental car has gotten dented and older and so It's losing its panache a little bit in this way or that. But there's a, there's a simple and immediate sense that this isn't who I really am. Does this make sense to you all? And Thich Nhat Hanh, I was teaching with him um, in Los Angeles at this big conference for psychologists on... Um, Eastern Western psychology, two or three thousand people at UCLA a couple of years ago. And he started with the story of being in his little hut in the highlands of North Vietnam, and he was a young monk. And he said, The day that my mother died, and she died when he was like 23 or something, that the day my mother not died, I wrote in my journal a great um, misfortune and sadness has befallen my whole life, because he really loved his mother. Um, and he said, I grieved for more than a year. And then one day, lying in my little hut, in the middle of the night, I woke up from a dream. And I dreamed it, that my mother was speaking to me, that she'd come, and her long black hair was flowing down, and she was wearing that beautiful Vietnamese Audi um, silk, um, and talking to me just as clearly as I'm speaking to you now. And I had this very clear sense that my mother had not died, that she was with me. 
and the moonlight was streaming in the window, and I went for a walk out among the tea plants. And I had the realization that my mother was there walking with me, and that as the moonlight touched my skin, it was my mother caressing my skin, that same soft caress of a mother touching my skin. And I realized that the notion that she was gone was just an idea, and that she was always with me and always will be, and that I looked down at my feet taking steps in the damp evening earth, And I saw that they weren't my feet, they were her feet, and my grandmother's feet, and my grandparents, my great-grandfather's, and that this body was our body, and that my mother could never die, that she was in me, and that death itself was untrue. He started this conference for therapists on this note. (laughs) And it it was really beautiful. Because it opened the gateway, as your conversation just did, to seeing from a different perspective that's not just the perspective of the ordinary solidity of self and who we think we are. Does this make sense? And it's so beautiful that we can open that door and gateway and listen um, and affirm one another. That affirmation is exceedingly important. I have one more thing to read to you, and then we'll take a break and go on a little more. Then I'm going to talk some about enlightenment, and we have another practice to do. Oh, there's so many stories to tell, but you know how it is, so little time. Um, And there are these beautiful accounts of Zen masters or people having their experiences of awakening in various forms. But this one, here here I am, a Buddhist teacher, quite a well-known Buddhist teacher, with many, many hundreds now, thousands of students, some of whom experience these powerful meditative openings of dissolving into light or having a sense of unity with things or, you know, the silence beyond the self. and, And this has not been my way or my experience. For a long time, this was the hardest thing for me to accept, that nothing happened. I'm not a person with big dramatic experiences. For 30 years now, it's simply been a process of practicing without being caught by my own ideas of discouragement or success. I would go for months of intensive training, and no spectacular experience would happen. This was especially hard for the first 10 years. But at least I never got trapped into believing I was some special spiritual person. Yet somehow things did change. What most transformed me were the endless hours of mindfulness, of giving a caring attention to what I was doing. I learned that the inner dropping of burden was not going to happen for me all in one piece, but again and again. I simply dropped the burdens of my judgment, my fear of distrust of myself of distrust of life, the tightness in body and mind. At some point, I discovered how automatically this tightness and grasping could arise. And with that realization, I started to let go and open to an appreciation of life as it played through each day, finding ease. The traditional teachings dawned on me that in reality, there is neither coming nor going, that from the reality of the present, Nothing ever really happens or ever will. 
Seeing this was like a confirmation of what I already knew. I became less serious, less concerned about myself. My kindness started to deepen. Oddly enough, some of my friends tell me I've become more and more like myself. A little eccentric, maybe. They say that there's been a very big change in me, but it wasn't produced by any special or particular event. I guess it's simply the fruit of being present over and over. Maybe liberation is that simple. So that's especially important to read here because one thing that was sort of vaguely named but not made explicit, and it's tough in these conversations, yes, there's the kind of inflation, look at me, but that's very rare. More often is the judging mind come in and say, you named it in part, well, this one, I'm not worthy, or this one doesn't count, you know, or I don't know something. But you do. You do, and you have, and you are. Um, and it's your birthright. It's what you're opening to. So let us take a... Uh... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.